focus of study, I take you with me to Matthew 25, verses 24 and 25. That is within the parable of the talents that, get, that Jesus once spoke. And those two verses concern the, the servant who had gained one talent or had been given one talent. And when the master called for account, he came up to him and he said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, here you have what is yours. I called your attention to those four words and I was afraid. This man was given an opportunity to produce an increase for his master, like the other two servants had been given. But he didn't even try, and he carefully hid that talent to preserve it intact. And what was it that prevented him from seizing that opportunity? He plainly tells us, and I was afraid. He was seized by fear that he would not invest well and that some or maybe all of the talent would be lost. And why did he have this fear? He tells us that too, very plainly. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. He was afraid that his master would beat the devil out of him if he lost that talent or some part of it. Masters did things like that to slaves back in those days. I've read descriptions that were left from back then and they were terrible. Folks, I did not use that phrase, beat the devil out of him, in a vain or flippant kind of way but very seriously, because it was the devil who encouraged this servant to fear his master as a hard man because the devil wanted this slave to mess up and to get in trouble. And how do I know that the devil was in him? Just look at verse 26 there in that text. There it says, his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. Where does wickedness come from? It comes from only one source, from evil. I mean, from Satan. He is the source of all that is evil. The parable, therefore, shows us that Satan was using fear as an effective tool in causing a person to fail before God by not performing his duty, usually by shutting the person down to do nothing like that servant did. Or sometimes it is to take a different path that is, in, uh, that is easy and that is safe. Fear is the emotional response to a perception that some kind of harm is right ahead and coming toward you. The perceived harm can be of different kinds. 
It can be bodily or physically, or it can be social. It can be financial, and then there's other kinds. The threat may be very real. For example, there's the threat of an approaching wildfire, like out in California and western states sometimes. Or it can be the fear of a rabid dog in the neighborhood. Or of a tornado that's approaching. Fear is good when there is really a danger because it will make you seek a place of safety. I've known of cases where somebody followed the advice when a tornado was announced to get in the innermost part of the house, and they did and were saved. The threat of social harm can come in the forms of mass ridicule, ostracism, or public derision. Fear is good if it leads you to avoid a scene like that because such treatment by a group of people can be psychologically devastating. When Mike Johnson became the Speaker of the House a couple of weeks ago, within hours he was getting death threats and all other kind of threats and warnings from people on the other side of the political spectrum. That shakes your day up. Psalm 1 opens with, an, uh, with a warning to us to avoid such people. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That is, don't get among such people if it's possible to avoid it. Part of Jesus' suffering on the cross, and I think it was a pretty big part, wasn't just the nails in his hand and feet and the crown of thorns on his head and the beating that he had had, but it was also being surrounded by people during the six hours he, hang, uh, he hung there hurting by people, surrounded by people who were abusing him verbally. In Matthew 27, 39, we're told of three groups that did that. One was the people who were just bypassers. As they walked by, they would ridicule him. Second was the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders who were deliberately trying to hurt him as much as they could. And then the third were two people, the thief that was crucified on each side of Jesus. Folks, it took the moral strength of the very Son of God to withstand that treatment. And you and I and no one else has it. Some of the strongest Christians have collapsed in the midst of it. I'm not going to cite examples. We don't have time. The threat of financial ruin, too, is very real, and it can materialize in a day's time, even when you're not expecting it. I have known people in the past, one, a first cousin, who lost all of their wealth in one day's time when they did not react fast enough to protect it. The fear that prompts such reaction that will save you grief and harm and trouble is very good fear. So fear can sometimes be good if we pay heed to the signal 
that it makes to us. But Satan knows those threats, and very often he is behind them. I can illustrate everything that I have just been saying to you with specifics from the Bible. And if you're willing to stay here until 8.30, I'll do that, but I know that you're not. In Matthew 27, or rather Proverbs 27 and verse 12, it speaks of this very thing. It says that a prudent man sees evil and hides himself, or we might say takes cover. But the naive proceed and pay the penalty. The King James in the place of naive, that French word, is foolish. The fear of harm saves a person who is foolish, who is watchful, careful, wise. A person, but ignoring that fear ruins the man when evil sweeps over him. Here I will give a specific example. I remember it from the news back then. Before Mount St. Helens erupted, in 1983, they knew it was coming in some form because the ground was rumbling down deep. There was a man who lived in a cabin near the base or at the base of Mount St. Helens. And they came to him and told him, said, this is going to erupt. You must get out of here. He said, no. He said, I have lived here for like 40 or 50 years in this cabin. And he said, that mountain has never caused me any trouble. He said, I feel like it's my friend. I trust it. Folks, the next day, that man whose name was Harry Truman, not the president, he just happened to have the same name. He was buried in the pyroclastic flow. And today, that's where he is, many feet down in the rock-hard, solidified lava. The harm that breeds fear is often seen as the consequence of something that you've done. And this is the case of the first occurrence of the word fear in the Bible. It's right back at the very beginning. God had told Adam and Eve not to eat of that forbidden tree but they did it anyway. Before God even came to them and spoke to them about that transgression, they were already fearing what God would do to them. They knew they had sinned, and they knew that they were due, uh, that, that, that they were guilty and due that something would be done by God. And so we read in Genesis 3, verses 9 and 10, Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the, the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Fear is a consequence of sin. If the sinner realizes that he has sinned and also knows that sin is always an offense against God. The fear is for the punishment that God will impose because of that sin. God had told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the forbidden fruit from that tree and sinned, they would surely die. Sin is painful. It is painful physically. It is painful emotionally. 
and the anticipation of that, of that pain of whatever kind produces fear in us. Example, in the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, Saul had been ordered to go down to where the Amalekites lived and wipe them out, just totally obliterate them in a big battle. And King Saul did that, except for one thing. He spared their king, whose name was Agag, and he brought him back to Israel. I don't know what he meant to do with him. That king was terribly wicked, and he feared that Saul uh, would kill him in a brutal way as punishment, but Saul didn't. Then the prophet Samuel met Saul and asked him, you know, why he had brought all this back, the, the flocks and the herds and Agag. And then he called for Agag. And there in verse 33 it says that Agag came to Samuel cheerfully, saying, Surely the bitterness of death is past. The penalty for sin is death. God pronounced that back at the beginning. And here Agag speaks of death as a bitterness. Folks, we all look upon death that way if we think about it, and sometimes we will, especially those who do not have their sins forgiven in baptism and aren't ready to meet the Lord. It's a bitter experience for them to die. I have watched, stood at the bedside and watched people die when I was a minister who weren't prepared to leave. They would never come to church. They wanted to be saved in that last minute. But Agag, in this case, was bitterly mistaken. Samuel said to him, as your sword has made children childless, so shall your mother be made childless. And then Samuel took a sword and it says he hewed him in pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Folks, that means that he left him as a pile of red meat on the ground all hacked up. You know, you'd think that the fear of punishment for sin would lead a person not to sin. And that therefore sin, I mean fear would be counterproductive to Satan's purpose and would not be one of his tools. Because for people who are prudent, that is the case. But another fear is also at play, and it's the greater fear. It's the one which operates in present time, now, and that's the one that Satan uses. It's his tool. What is that fear? Here it is. It's current in America, as the 15th of November, 2023. It's the fear that you're going to miss out on the great pleasures of sin that are prominent and popular in our culture now. Folks, you don't have to tell them. Most people know well enough that drugs and alcohol and sexual promiscuity and carousing are sinful and then in time, they're going to kick back on you and cause harm. But people disregard that, and they choose to engage in these activities for the fear that if they don't, they're going to lose out on the joy of life 
Or as the teenagers would say, where it's at. The fear of losing out on fun and not enjoying yourself as much as you can like everybody around you while you can do it now in present time folks is stronger than the fear of ending life in a, in a wreck of misery that's out yonder somewhere this is right now today and this is going on that's so much fun I'll do this today and worry about that 30 years from now. And folks, the proof of that is visible in people all about you. If you don't believe it, just go to somebody who is enjoying the pleasures of sin to the hilt and try to talk them out of, out of it. Encourage them to forsake it and to live a restrained life in the Lord. And you will see for yourself boldly the fear of not having a good time right now. That fear is stronger than the fear of ruin way out yonder somewhere. Let me illustrate from literature. I had to take a course one time called Modern German Literature. And this is where I really became uh, acquainted with this. It was the basis that is the fear of missing out on fun right now, was the basis of the epochal novel by Johann Goethe. It's entitled in German, Doktor Faust. Faust was a German professor who made a bargain with the devil, who came to him as a being named Mephistopheles. The bargain was that the devil would give Faust every possible pleasure that this world can offer for the next 20 years. But at the end of that time, he would have to yield up his soul to the devil. Rather than fear that, 20 years later, Faust missed, uh, feared missing the next 20 years of more fun than any man in the world had ever had unbridled fun. If it's fun, I get it. So he accepted the deal. Folks, 20 years is a long time. 240 calendar months. 7,305 days. That's a long time. And Faust thought that sometime during those 20 years I can figure out the way to beat the devil when he comes for payback. And so for 20 years, Faust did it. He had all the fun a human being can possibly have of any kind whatsoever. But the 20 years finally passed. And on the evening of the last day, Faust came, I mean, Satan came to collect the soul of Dr. Faust. Faust resisted. I don't want to go. Here's reasons why I can't go. But he had no choice. He had made a deal and the devil took him. And for all eternity, this Faust, if he's a real person, will be in hell, suffering, 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 suffering unendingly for 20 years of fun. You, so you see, there are different kinds of fear. Some are beneficial. We've spoken of them. That lead you to avoid sin and great harm, both physical and spiritual. 
for the sin, I mean, the fear that Satan plays with you and me on is the fear of missing out on something fun right now. Fear is a negative force that causes a person to hold back from certain commandments, identifications, associations, and courses of action. This is why Satan uses it in his strategy in his war against God. He uses fear to prevent you from forsaking the secular lust-driven life to follow the person who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to God but by me. And that, of course, was Jesus in uh, John 14, verse 6. Satan does not want your soul to come favorably to God's throne in heaven. It's his avowed purpose to take you to hell with him. He knows he's going there, but he wants you to go with him. And one of his tools for doing it is to make you afraid to follow the Christian way. He wants to keep you and anyone from committing your life to Christ. Or he wants to withdraw you from that commitment if you've already made it, and he will try. He does not want you to be identified as a Christian or a child of God or a believer and follower of the Bible or a member of the Lord's church. If you already have those identifications, he wants to sever them and take you away from them. He does not want you to associate with any form or expression of religion or any cause that promotes the welfare of people, which is a part of religion. It's okay, he will tell you. It's okay to attend the services if you want to, but just don't contribute anything or very much. And don't take part in any active time of service that's going on. Walk out the door and go home. Come in, sit down, get up and leave, and that's it. Get your ticket punched for the week, and you're okay. That's what he tells you to think. He does not want you to be actively involved in the works of the church. Evangelism, benevolence, programs for spiritual improvement, those things build up God's kingdom. Satan wants to tear it down, so he don't want you doing those things. And he'll convince you easily to stay out of it. Satan's tactic is to use fear to block you from any real service to God. He'll make you believe that if you do, some kind of harm or great disadvantage is going to come upon you. I'll illustrate this with something from the history of the church. I doubt there's anybody here now but me, and I'm not boasting, that knows about this. But folks, it's a very real thing. It's documented history. It was horrible for the church, and you need to know about it. In the year of 249 A.D., <clears throat> a man by the name of Decius became the emperor of the Roman Empire. This man hated Christianity, and he said, As emperor, I'm going to eradicate it. And in its place, I'm going to restore the worship of the traditional gods of the Roman people. And he was followed by two emperors just like him, Gallus and then Valerian. These three ruled the empire for 11 years, from 249 A.D. to 260. And they did all they could to eradicate the church and all of its members. 
This was the first empire-wide persecution of Christianity in the church. And folks, it was extremely severe and vicious. Nearly every Christian in the empire, anywhere, was sooner or later brought before a court and forced to renounce his allegiance to Christ and if not, suffer dire penalties. Those who refused, and there were those who did, were first tortured. And then if they did not recant, they were nearly always killed. And then their property was confiscated by the state. A few who had special circumstances were spared death, but they were banished beyond the borders of the empire to live among the barbarians, and that was not a good thing either. It's not known how many Christians perished or died or were banished during that 11-year period, but all scholars are agreed that it was tens upon tens of thousands, maybe way over 100 or 200,000. The church was literally knocked flat for a decade, and it was only by the grace of God that it did survive. How did Christians meet this extended ordeal as it swept across the empire, from the Black Sea and the Persian Gulf in the east to Spain and England in the west, and from the North Sea down to the burning sands of the Sahara in the south. How did they do it? They faced it in two ways. First, as I have just said, thousands would not deny Christ, and they were either slain, or a much smaller number, banished into barbarism. What about the rest of them? Folks, that was the majority. Here's what history tells us. They were literally scared silly. They denied Christ as soon as they could possibly do it. And they began to kneel down and worship the Roman idols as though that was the only thing to do. But by the merciful grace of God, there was a remnant of Christians who managed to hide out from the authorities in remote places in the Pyrenees Mountains, in the Alps, in the thick forests of Germany of that time, or maybe on a few isolated islands. Finally, in 260 AD, the persecution was lifted, and there followed a 40-year period of peace and tranquility and safety. One scholar described all of this this way, quote, for 11 years the church was brutalized, and hell had a jubilee, end of quote. You see, Satan was using a season of great triumph over the Church of Christ by the fear of persecution, which was indescribably horrible. He sent perhaps half of the church to the grave and the other half into quick apostasy. And folks, he wants to repeat that triumph any time he can. And someday he might well do it. How would we react, you and I, if it were to begin within the next year? And folks, it could. We may be in the first stages of it now. 
When the 40-year respite of peace and security ended, though, in 260 A.D., there's more to the story. The church began to rebuild. It began to preach publicly. It began to evangelize and, and win new converts. <clears throat> then when all was safe and well and easy, the thousands upon thousands who had denied Christ to save their hides swarmed back to the church. And when the invitation song was sung, they crowded the aisles getting to the front. I want the prayers of the church. I want to be forgiven. I want to be accepted back into fellowship with the faithful. I guess we'd say that's good. But what about those Christians who had suffered horribly, hid out, maybe survived in, in banishment and got back into the area again? How did they feel about it? They said, no! We will not receive you back. These cowardly, fair-weather Christians is what they are. They believed they had sold their souls to the devil, and now they belong to him and always would. The enormous problem in dealing with these weak and cowardly people was resolved only by time the passing into the grave of that entire generation of the church. It was only when a new generation was born and took the, their place that things got back to peace, brotherly love, and normality. Folks, that was probably the most horrible period that the church has ever known from the time it was established until now. Now we're going to look at a very clear biblical case where fear was used to immobilize the entire nation of God's people and to lay his promise to them for an entire generation. It was about a year after they had crossed the Red Sea and left Egypt and had come down to Mount Sinai where they camped out for 11 months during which they received the law of God on Mount Sinai, built the tabernacle and established the priesthood and the sacrificial system. When all of that was done, about one year, God said it's time to invade the land and move in and take it and live there. So they came up to the southern border of Canaan, the promised land, to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And there they set themselves to begin the invasion and conquest. But first, Moses thought it wise to send some men into the land, 12 of them, to scout it out, to get information on its features, its people, its cities, and its military strength. When they returned to camp after some weeks, they gave a report to all the people, but really the report was divided. Part of it was by 10 of those scouts or spies, two of it, uh, of them gave a different report. Now here's the report of the ten spies beginning in Numbers 13 and verse 31. We are not able to go up among those people or against them for they're too strong for us. So they gave a bad report of the land which they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone is a land that devours its inhabitants 
and all the people whom we saw are men of great size. There they saw the Nephilim, that means giants, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. These men were scared silly because they were judging what they saw by their own size and strength, not by the power and the wisdom of God. Folks, that would be analogous to an army today that has the most modern, powerful weapons forgetting about it and being afraid to meet an enemy. Only two of these spies looked up to God as an invincible force that would definitely give them victory in every encounter. But folks, fear is infective. It's contagious. And the mass of the people believe those 10 spies who were totally demoralized. In Numbers 14, verses 3 and 4, their reaction is reported. They said, why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. You see, fear had drained them of courage and strength, just like a hole in the bottom of a bucket will drain all the water out of it. And they wanted to do what terrified people always do, turn, run as fast as you can, and hide wherever you can. They wanted to run back to Egypt to become slaves again, to knuckle down to Pharaoh and start making brick for him again. In the army, fear and fleeing is called demoralization. Back in the Civil War, when troops were very poorly trained and were in their very first battle, droves of the men would throw down their rifles and head for the rear as fast as they could run when the first shots were fired. Some battles were lost, major battles in the Civil War. For one reason, so many of the soldiers ran away from the battle line, there weren't enough left to carry on the battle. I'll cite two major examples. The very first battle, real battle, of the Civil War was in July of 1861 at Bull Run. The Union lost that and were routed because when it, they first began to shoot, a tremendous number of their soldiers turned and ran and didn't stop running until they got back to Washington, D.C. and the fortifications. The second case is the Battle of Missionary Ridge in November of 1863, right down here at Chattanooga. The, it was a Southern defeat because when the Union Army started up that ridge, they said nearly half of the battle line turned and ran, and they lost the battle terribly. There is one famous case in this line of thought. In West Tennessee, in the spring of 1864, General Forrest saw one of his recruit soldiers running away from the battle line he rode up to the man and stopped him and said, why are you running away from the battle line? 
The man told him plainly, said, General, I'm demoralized. Forrest then said, well, I'm going to give you something to undemoralize you. He got off his horse, quickly cut a switch off of a tree, grabbed the soldier by one wrist and held him tightly, and he striped him from shoulder to ankle and back up to his shoulder. And then he turned him loose and he said, now you get back up there to that battle line and pick up your gun and fight. He said, if I see you running away, this is only Mickey Mouse stuff to what's fixing to happen to you. He didn't say Mickey Mouse, but, you know, very small thing. Folks, that incident really happened. It was observed, and it was carried in newspapers across the United States, north and south, for the next few weeks. I got pictures of it and books at home, if you want to see it, where somebody drew a picture of it. What causes such fear in picture in people? Is that defeat, is that... Uh, incident at Kadesh Barnea. Of course, it's the perception they're going to be slain in battle, but Satan uses that fear to immobilize the people of God and hold them back from needed service. We're told in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7 that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. When you are a soldier in the Lord's army, as every Christian is, every Christian is, you cannot lose. You're doing the Lord's work. You're fight for him. You cannot lose. Satan does not put fear into you. Fear is a natural human response. But what he does, he capitalizes on it. And he magnifies your perception of the danger until you feel that it's a juggernaut that's going to roll right over you and mash you as flat as a sheet of paper. If you don't know about the juggernaut, ask me and I'll tell you outside of class. The remedy for fear is one thing, faith, the total confidence that if you stand up and struggle against the devil for God, he'll make you a, a David who can slay a Goliath. Joshua and Caleb had that faith, and the strength of the Canaanites, or rather Joshua and Caleb, as I said, just had that strength. And that made the strength of the Canaanites nothing to them. They knew that God would give them the victory. And a generation later, the grown-up sons of that fearful generation were able to invade Canaan and conquer it and win every battle. They had been taught courage, and they rejected the demoralization of Satan. They defeated armies that were much bigger than their own, much better equipped than their own. And they won every battle because God worked through their courage. Satan works through your, your fear. God works through your faith and courage. Satan had worked through their fear, uh, through the fear of their fathers 40 years earlier. And God sent them back into the wilderness to die one by one for the next 39 years. Folks, that was an average of about 211 deaths per day for 39 years. If you wonder, what did they do during those 39 years? They buried people. God had no sympathy for the, the fearful, and he doesn't today. Because to let fear rule your life is to turn yourself over to Satan. Just put, him, put yourself right in his hand. In Proverbs 21.7, we're told that the cowardly 
along with a host of sinners, will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 